Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good. It's our second 2019 episode. I was just about to ask. Cool. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm doing pretty good today. Have you reached your goals yet? For 2019? Yeah. No. We're it's... two weeks in, buddy. I... No, I, I don't plan on reaching my goals this year, I guess. Like, I'm not, like... <laughs> well, That's not good. Give me some time here. Okay, okay, I'll give you three weeks. All right. What are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching Dr. Renault's Secret from 1942. Interesting, okay. This is our first horror film from 20th Century Fox. Oh. We haven't seen really anything from 20th Century Fox or either of the two predecessor studios that it had. Um, if you don't know, 20th Century Fox was formed in 1935 from the merger of the Fox Film Corporation and 20th Century Pictures. We kind of talk a little bit about how those like rungs and different types of studios, there's like Poverty Row mm-hmm. Studios with PRC at the bottom rung yeah. of that ladder, and then MGM is kind of at the top with yeah. very... With a lot of prestige. Mm-hmm. Um, where were 20th Century and Fox? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> I'm glad that my... I, I didn't mean to set you up to explain. I, I was really just asking a question, but I'm glad it worked out. So the Fox Film Corporation was founded by William Fox, uh, who got his start as the owner of a chain of Nickelodeons in New York City at the age of 25 in 1904. In four years' time, he had expanded his business from film exhibition to also film distribution, and he actually won an antitrust lawsuit uh, when the major film studios of the time tried to establish exclusive control of film distribution. By 1914, Fox decided that he wasn't satisfied relying on other companies' product uh, for distributing and exhibiting, Uh, So he expanded his business into production as well, opening up studios in Hollywood. In 1925, Fox Film Corporation acquired the sound-on-film process, movie tone, uh, in order to compete with Warner Brothers' sound-on-disc process. Sound-on-film would ultimately win out that battle, and Fox's movie tone films greatly increased the company's success. By 1926, they had the best-equipped studio in Hollywood. So it sounds like they're pretty up there. Yeah. So in 1929, Fox lost most of his fortune in the stock market crash, Mm. and he was also badly injured in a car crash. By 1930, he and the company were close to bankruptcy, and he was actually put in jail for trying to bribe the Justice Department to rule in his favor because he wanted to buy out the Lowe's theater chain, which was owned by MGM, uh, after the death of its founder, Marcus Lowe. So with Fox in jail and the company in receivership, uh, the banks took over the Fox Film Corporation uh, with Sidney Kent appointed as the new president. But it was clear that the Fox Film Corporation needed like a buyout or a merger to continue. The banks weren't going to just keep running this film company forever. So that brings us to 20th Century Pictures. Uh, which was founded by United Artists president Joseph Schenck 
and former Warner Brothers producer Daryl F. Zanuck as a movie production company. Now, you may remember from previous episodes that United Artists had been founded by Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin, Douglas Fairbanks, and D.W. Griffith as this kind of, like, creator's rights movie film company. Yeah, it was kind of like an indie company, or like the image comics of the film industry. Yeah, exactly. It was a, a company where they could control their own movies, their own creative output. However, by the 1930s, the popularity of the founders' films had decreased. So Joseph Schenck was brought on to manage the company into its transition as a distributor of indie films. Sort of like how Image Comics went from being all about Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld to being like a company that, you know, basically serves as an outlet for, you know, books like Saga or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was in that sort of mode that we encountered United Artists with like White Zombie, where it was an indie film that UA distributed. Now, in order to ensure the profitability of United Artists with this new business model, 20th Century Pictures was founded as a production company that would feed films solely to United Artists. Okay, that makes sense. So movies by 20th Century formed half of the yearly United Artists release schedule, with these indie films that they picked up for distribution forming the other half. And it basically served as an outlet for Daryl F. Zanuck, who had left Warner Brothers over um, disputes with well, the Warner Brothers. <laughs> By 1934, Schenck felt that he and Zanuck should have stock in United Artists and be put on the board. Um, however, Mary Pickford disagreed, since this would dilute the value of the stock owned by the founders. Uh, so she blocked Schenck and Zanuck's attempt to become stockholders. Outraged, uh, Schenck <laughs> and Zanuck split off 20th Century Pictures in search of a new distributor. So, in 1935, 20th Century merged with Fox to form the new, more powerful 20th Century Fox. Okay, and it continues to this day. Yeah, for another couple weeks. Really? Well, because Disney's buying them, dear. What? In, like, like later in January 2019 is when the, the takeover's happening. I didn't know. Yeah, the merger was approved, like, two, three months ago. Oh my god, I thought those were just rumors. No. Then I guess it's very timely that we're talking about the beginnings of this company. Yes. So, Fox's stable of stars, uh, after the merger, was in rough shape. Um, their biggest star, Will Rogers, had died in a plane crash a week after the merger. Um, and the rest of their stars were either has-beens, or they had fled the studio in the wake of its financial troubles. For example, Spencer Tracy leaving Fox to go to MGM. So, Zanuck invested in creating new stars for the studio, like Tyrone Power, Carmen Miranda, Henry Fonda, Betty Grable, and Shirley Temple. Focus Those are pretty big names. Yes. <laughs> Focusing on musicals, biopics, and lighthearted entertainment, Zanuck made 20th Century Fox the third most profitable studio in Hollywood by the start of World War II. Okay, so they are up there. Yes. In, um, in where, where, where are we? 40, 1942? When yeah. are we? Yes. 1942. Yeah, they're behind MGM and Paramount. Okay. So, in 1942... Spiros Skouras became the company's president, replacing Sidney Kent, and agreed with Zanuck that it was time to change the company's image 
and create more serious and adult-oriented films, um, provocative, issue-oriented stories. Mm. And that would remain Fox's brand from 1942 through to the end of the decade. That move in direction is probably totally unrelated to them producing their first horror movie in 1942. This is like a practice run. Well, no, it's like it's tempting to draw a connection there, but I don't think there's a connection at all. I think the connection is, oh, horror movies are making a lot of money, let's try that. Like, I don't think it has anything to do with the rest of the studio's change in image and direction that was happening at the time. Okay. Um, The reason why I say that is because um, while the script for Dr. Renault's Secret was written by rookie screenwriters William Bruckner and Robert F. Metzler, and they are the only credited writers in the movie, the story does not originate with them. Mm. In 1927, Fox Film Corporation had made a film called The Wizard, uh, which this is a remake of. Now, we didn't watch that movie uh, because it's a lost film. As are many Fox films made before 1932 due to a 1937 fire at the Fox storage facility. Now, that film was about a mad scientist whose son was sentenced to death so he creates an ape man to kill the jurors in revenge? <laughs> that sounds pretty dope for 1927. Uh, now, The Wizard itself was based on, I believe it's a 1912 novel by Phantom of the Opera writer Gaston LaRue called Balaloo? Balaoo? Can you shine any light on Balaoo, Sarah? <laughs> um, well, it's Balao. Okay. It's French. Okay. I See, I kept reading it as being like Baloo from Jungle Book. Yeah. Well, it's spelled B-A-L-A-O-O. Uh-huh. But, uh, yeah, according to Google Translate, at the very least, it's Baylao. Okay. Um, and it's a name. It doesn't translate to anything. Sure. Yeah, it's been a while since we've talked about Gaston LaRue. Um, yeah. We went into a lot of detail on our Phantom of the Opera episode Um, So if you want to know more about the French journalist and fiction writer, go check that out that episode. It's episode 14, I believe. Um, So Gaston LaRue, he lived between 1868 to 1927, and his two big novels that really captured the public's imagination was The Mystery of the Yellow Room in 1908 and Phantom of the Opera in 1910. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Mystery of the Yellow Room is one of the most famous locked room mysteries. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, that's not like an escape room type deal. It's a, how did this murder happen? The room was locked from the inside, and no one could have gotten in, and that kind of mystery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Phantom of the Opera um, is like... Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, yeah. People know what Phantom of the Opera is, I'm sure. LaRue wrote a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just kind of the nature of, you know, early 1900s journalist and fiction writer type careers. Yeah, you gotta grind to make a living. Yeah. Um, but Bailao, um, it doesn't seem like it's very well known. Because no. Because there's not a lot of information about it mm-hmm. online. But what I could find out is that it is about this secluded rich guy named Coriolis St. Alban, um, who comes back from the East with um, this native boy servant named Noel. Okay. And um, he helps raise Noel, and the twist 
probably in like the first third of the novel, is that Noelle is actually a monkey that's been raised by Coriolis to be civilized, basically, to raised as a human. Okay. And this guy, his, I guess you could say, like, man name is Noel, mm-hmm. but um, he calls himself Belau. Okay. And if you want to read it, it is available online through, like, um, Wikipedia has, like, a way to read books. Yeah, Wikisource. It's a public domain right. novel then, yeah? Yeah, so you can read it through Wikisource, or um, I found it through gutenberg.net.au, yeah. which is, like, Australia, but, like, Well, Project Gutenberg fine. is a, a major internet archive of public domain novels. Yeah, so most of what I gleaned about the plot comes from skimming the entire novel. Okay. <laughs> so it starts with kind of a, a murder mystery. Um, these two guys have been murdered, and it's kind of mysterious the way that they were murdered. There's footprints on the ceiling, for example. Meanwhile, in town, there's, you know, rich old guy who likes to be secluded, Coriolis, you know, being weird. And in the beginning, you just think that he has this strange native boy from the east mm-hmm. um, named Noel. Um, but it turns out, you know, Noel's actually an ape man. And um, as the novel goes on, it kind of switches to be almost like, um, it reminded me of Tarzan of the Apes. Okay. A bit. With where... It's like the reverse of that. A little bit. Ape raised by human instead of human raised by apes. Yeah, well, because you you know when, like, Tarzan gets brought back to England and he's trying to integrate and all that? And it goes poorly. (laughs) It goes poorly. That's kind of what happens to Belau. So he gets fed up with society. He tries to reintegrate, you know, back into his country. Mm -hmm. And that goes poorly. Um, And so he tries to come back to society. Again, it goes poorly. Um, and it's kind of tragic at the end because, um, Coriolis's niece, Madeline, Bailau is in love with her and she marries someone else. And so he's like, I'll just be depressed in the forest then. It's, it's very strange. Um, I mean, that's on target for Gaston LaRue. Like his jam is putting together a lot of weird nonsense into like one strange plot. So yeah, that's Phantom in a nutshell too. Now I'll just like note that this novel came out in 1912. Mm -hmm. Tarzan of the Apes also came out in 1912, but in America by Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, Gaston LaRue's in France. So I wonder if part of the reason why Tarzan's so much bigger in our, like, literary consciousness, you could say, is because it was America and maybe that overshadowed Sure, yeah, it's it's in English, we didn't have to translate it, the yeah. film industry was starting to get big right around that time too, and I know Tarzan was like adopted into movies like really, really early, mm-hmm. um, so that's probably a huge part of it. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, so was Bailau, um, it, there's actually a film adaptation in 1913. Yes, I found out about that, even though I couldn't find anything about the novel at all, the fucking plot synopsis I found for the 1913 movie was wild and doesn't seem to match either the 1927 movie or what you just told me. Yeah. But if you want, there's a four-minute clip on YouTube if you want to look at it. <laughs> oh, I was told that movie was lost, that there was nothing of that movie. Oh, that's how I, like, I, I found it and Google translated the bottom. That's how I learned that it was a name. Huh. And then kind of went from there. 
Okay, yeah, all my research told me the 1913 version was was totally lost. Did it seem complete, or was it like an excerpt? Um, I couldn't tell because the title cards are in French. Right. And it's only four minutes. Right. So, I don't know. The plot synopsis I found of the 1913 film was that Bailao was an ape turned into a human by a mad scientist who is Dr. Coriolis, and he falls in love with Madeline, Coriolis's niece, but there's a poacher who is in love with Madeline who <laughs> captures so who captures Bailao in order to force Bailao to basically like capture Madeline and bring her back to the poacher, but because Bailao's in love with Madeline, they're actually romantic rivals for her, which is kind of a phantom thing as well. Yeah. And that's just struck me as like super wild because that's so different from the wizard and then it's also very different from the novel you just told me about you can kind of see where they're pulling these pieces yeah the the transition from one to another makes sense yeah i mean like even the wizard 1927 the main doctor is paul coriolis Mm -hmm. so now coriolis is a last name and he's upset about his son Mm -hmm. when um in the novel it's his nephew who gets murdered okay yeah the fact that, like, we have these two similar ideas across the pond from each other. Like, this is also, like, after a lot of colonialism stuff. Like, I, th- there's enough global events going on that I can, like, perceive these guys coming up with the same kind of ideas, same kind of slightly racist ideas. Well, you have the intersection of, like, the, the scramble for Africa with the, like, widespread dissemination of Darwinianism mm-hmm. happening at the same time. Right? Yeah, so I don't think it's like a case of like someone trying to steal someone's ideas. I no. think it's just happens. Yeah, the same stuff was in the water. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> anyways. So that's, uh, you know, that's where this idea comes from. Yeah, so this version's script um, had a ton of problems with the production code authority. Really? At, I would not have thought. Yeah, as you that may that imagine. Would <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the Hayes office, um, they said of the script, quote, This story is based on theories of human origin in such a way that if presented to the public will undoubtedly offend the sensibilities of large groups of religious people of different faiths and, accordingly, could not be approved under the provisions of the code. Secondly, there seems to be an excessive number of gruesome and detailed killings, which also could not be approved. <laughs> Listen, Darwinism is one thing, but you also got murders in here? Come on. See, I took that to almost be the opposite. It's like, it's like, oh man, you can't say evolution's a thing. Also, murder is bad. Um, so, having gotten that notice, uh, 20th Century Fox replied to the code office, quote, It is agreed to eliminate any reference to Darwin or his theory, and instead establish the ape as a throwback. Details involving gruesomeness will be handled with care, unquote. All right. So, you know, some changes were made to the script to, to tone <laughs> Handle it down. with care. Yeah. Uh, the film was directed by Harry Lockman, who was born in 1886 in Illinois. He got his start as a magazine and book illustrator before moving to Paris in 1911 and becoming a renowned post-impressionist painter, winning the Legion of Honor from the French government. Huh. From painting, he transitioned into being a set designer in the French film industry in the 1920s. He became a director by 1928 and moved first to England 
and then Hollywood by 1933. He married Chinese-American painter Zhu Quan Tai in 1938, although their marriage would be illegal for many years until miscegenation laws in the United States were repealed. Oh, did, were they married in the States or like elsewhere? I, I don't know. Okay. Lachman directed 46 films over the course of his career, including the 1935 version of Dante's Inferno starring Spencer Tracy, uh, for which Lachman created an elaborate vision of hell inspired by the art of Gustave Doré. Dr. Renault's Secret was actually his final film, Oh. Uh, after which he retired from the film industry and returned to painting, passing away in 1975. The idea of coming from painting is really interesting mm-hmm. to me. I, I really want to see some of these films of his. Yeah, for sure. So the titular mad scientist, Dr. Renault, is played by George Zuko, who just played the mad scientist, Dr. Cameron, in last week's movie. So for more on him, you can check out last week's episode. Because um, this was literally his next movie. Yeah. That one was The Mad Monster. It was also the episode where we decided we were officially sick of mad scientists, so I'm so glad we're seeing this movie. <laughs> now, the monster in Dr. Renault's Secret, uh, who is named Noel in this version, mm-hmm. uh, is played by J. Carroll Nash. Born in 1896 in New York, he got his start in a vaudeville troupe of child actors, and after World War I, he traveled the world with his own song and dance act, until 1926, when his boat broke down and stranded him in California. Oh, okay, I thought you were going to say, like, stranded him in, like, the Pacific or something. No. Um, So, stranded in California, he started acting in films. (laughs) What am I gonna do? I guess I'll be an actor. Yeah. Uh, Despite being Irish, he was frequently called upon to play other ethnicities. Over the course of his career, he played Latino, Indigenous Americans, Slavic... Mediterranean, Arabic, Asian, Polynesian, and African-American characters, and was at one point nicknamed Hollywood's One Man UN. (laughs) Did he ever play an Irish character? No. No? Okay. For a certain fandom, he is perhaps best known as the actor who portrayed Dr. Daka, the Japanese villain of the first live-action depiction of Batman in the eponymous 1943 serial. Which we have watched. Yes, and own on DVD, of course. (laughs) Uh, He would also earn an Academy Award nomination for his role in Sahara that same year, uh, and another nomination in 1945 for his role in A Medal for Benny. Uh, His role in this film was right before the role in Batman. That was the next thing he did after this movie. All right. The male romantic lead is played by Shepard Strudwick, uh, a 35-year-old actor who's probably best known today for his role as Dr. Adam Stanton in the 1945 classic All the King's Men. Mm -hmm. Lynn Roberts is the female romantic lead. Uh, She was 20 years old at the time, but she had claimed to be two years older when she signed her first film contract in 1936. So they thought she was 16 when she was hired. She was actually 14. Oof. Uh, So they thought she was, uh, like, 22 when she was making this movie. She started out originally at Republic Pictures uh, before coming to Fox in 1941. Uh, She stayed at Fox until 1948, then moved back to Republic, then Columbia, then Monogram, and then RKO. Uh, Her film career was almost exclusively in B-movies, about a third of which were westerns. Uh, She's perhaps most well-remembered today as the love interest in the original 1938 serial version of The Lone Ranger from Republic. 
Is this like the third episode in a row that we've mentioned the Lone Ranger? Yeah, I, the two previous ones were in regards to the 1950s TV show, and this mm. is for the 1930s serial. But like, <laughs> you have to remember that like the Lone Ranger was really fucking popular for a yeah. while there. It's sort of like how if you're talking about actors today, like you're gonna They're end probably up gonna be on Star Trek or like in a Marvel movie, or, like, half of them have played Batman, or whatever, <laughs> right? Sure. So, another actor in this movie of note is six-foot-five-inch-tall pro wrestler Mike Mazurki, uh, okay. who was born Markayan Mazurkovich in what is now the Ukraine. Okay. And he appears in this film as an escaped convict. Now, Mazurki made a career of playing tough guys and thugs and other, like, roles that took advantage of the fact that he was big and huge and intimidating. Uh, he's perhaps best known today for playing the villain Splitface in the first Dick Tracy feature film in 1945. Okay. So, out of currently Ukraine, so at this time he would be Russian. Uh, I have no idea. Well, when he was born, it was Austria-Hungary. Right. Um, but by 1942, uh... I guess, yeah, it would be the Soviet Union. Right. Um, but he, he definitely was already in America uh, before that. Okay. Uh, a very minor role in the film, Inspector Duval, uh, is filled by an actor I wanted to talk about just because I thought he was interesting. He's 46-year-old Irish actor Arthur Shields. And before he was an actor, he was an Irish nationalist. Uh, he fought in the 1916 Easter Uprising. He was captured by the Welsh and was a prisoner of war in Wales. Uh, and upon his release, he was decorated by the Republic of Ireland. Most of his films were roles in John Ford westerns of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, Ford brought him to America to star in his westerns. Okay. I wonder how they met. No clue. <laughs> so Dr. Renault's Secret was released on October 19th, 1942. And while it wasn't anything that set the world on fire, uh, it was successful enough for Fox to try horror again later that same year with The Undying Monster. All right. How are we watching this? So today, uh, if you want to watch Dr. Renault's Secret, you have to pick it up on DVD in the Fox Horror Classics Collection, Volume 2, uh, where it is placed in a three-film box set alongside a pulp adventure movie and a period gothic romance. So one horror movie out of three in this horror classics collection. <laughs> Cool. Well, hopefully you can pick that up, listener. In the meantime, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude. When we come back, we will discuss Dr. Renault's Secret from 1942, directed by Harry Lackman. See you on the other side, everybody. and welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Dr. Renault's Secret from 1942. Sarah, what'd you think of this one? This was a surprise hit for me. Okay. I thought it was fine. <laughs> You're like, eh, it was fine. And here I am with, like, starry eyes looking at Dr. Renault's Secret. Okay, cool. Okay. So why don't we start with a plot summary? Because we gave, like... 
a few different summaries at the beginning based on, like, the original, from what I could glean from, like, quickly, like, skimming a novel, and some film adaptation synopsis. Yeah, and this is nothing like any of those. Like, there's certainly, like, a basic, basic premise still here, but, like, I mean, we've seen that basic premise in a bunch of stuff already, so... I think it's, like, actually fairly, like, comparable to the book, maybe, a little bit. (laughs) Okay, that's funny, considering they, like, don't credit the book in any way. Yeah. But uh, why don't you tell us what the film was about? So the American doctor Larry Forbes just arrives in a French village, which is unnamed, to wed his fiancée, Madeleine Renault. And I mean, right off the bat, what year is it? Yeah, it's don't defi- think about it, though. Yeah, like, it's definitely not 1942, because, like, then you're either in Nazi Germany or you're in Vichy France, and either way, America's at war with those, so you can't just go there to marry someone, and no one's, like, talking about... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't ask questions. Yeah, no just kidding. Just accept it. Uh-huh. And he's met by Madeline's uncle's handyman, Noel. It's just a little bit odd. They are delayed by rain and the washing out of a bridge, so they can't head up to the chateau right away, so they decide to stay at this inn. Also staying at this inn is Renal's gardener, Rogel. Mm-hmm. Rogel. This movie's all over the place with whether they're going to pronounce names like they're French, like Renault, or whether they're just going to be like Renault. Yeah. Rogel. Yeah. Jeanne. <laughs> Rogel, he's an ex-con, and um, as he's, you know, sitting in a dark corner, a little bit like Aragorn, um, <laughs> uh, he happens to see the flash of some money in Forbes's wallet. So he's like, hmm, money. And I bring this up because when Forbes heads up to go to his room, he finds that a drunk person who was played for gags earlier in the movie um, happened to take his room. So he's like, fine, I'll just go into this other room. And that night, that tourist is murdered instead of Forbes. With the possible motive of robbery, but it's also not quite clear whether it could be Noel, given that he seems a little protective of Madeline. Yeah, and he had an argument with this particular drunk tourist earlier in the night when the tourist, like, made some, like, bad comments. Yeah. The police inspector, at the very least, suspects that the target was actually Dr. Forbes. The next day, Forbes, Noel, and Rogel make it to the house. They meet Madeline and Dr. Renault, and, um, around this time, Madeline also adopts a dog who promptly attacks Noel for no real reason except perhaps animal instincts. And that night, that poor dog is strung up and hanged. And you only see the shadow, but it was shocking, honestly, for a movie to be doing this. At this point, we learn Renal's secret about Noel being an ape and how abusive Renal is. And just the audience knows this from a conversation between Renal and Noel. Noel says that he's innocent of these crimes, both of the tourist and of the dog, but he's not believed. So we're left to kind of question, are his animal instincts coming out? Mm. The next day is Bastille Day, 
which is um, a day for French independence celebrations. Yeah, it's it's French Fourth of July, basically. Yeah, so there's a lot of celebrations going on, and at this point, it's clear that Rogel and the butler Henri are up to something. At the celebrations, Noel tries to have fun, but a couple of villagers um, laugh at him and uh, saying things that like he dances like an ape. And that really gets Noel's goat, as it were. Um, so he happens to follow these men individually and kills them. He happens to leave evidence behind that he was the one who murdered these folks, um, and Forbes picks up this evidence, and at this point he knows that Noel is a murderer. So back at the chateau, Forbes heads into the secret lab. Um, it's not really a secret. That's not Renault's secret. I mean, it it... It's a lab in his basement that no one's allowed to go into that has, like, the typical, like, is this a lab or is it a torture chamber kind of look that labs tend to have in these movies. Yeah. So anyways, he goes in, and that's when he figures out that Noelle is an ape. Mostly by just reading Renault's, like... Diary? Like, like, yeah, like his experiment notes. And there's some handy photos that go along. Like, like it's a scrapbook. Yeah, or like you're seeing like a slideshow of his progress. <laughs> Noel and Renault catch Forbes in the lab. And it's at this point that Renault is like, see, I'm not crazy, and pulls a gun <laughs> on him. <laughs> Noel attacks Renault, and they fight. Um, and the result of this fight is Forbes getting knocked unconscious and Renault being killed. Meanwhile, Madeline screams as Rigel breaks into her room to kidnap her. Mm -hmm. Noelle pursues them to this old mill. He and Rigel fight, and Noelle kills Rigel. Um, and just as Forbes and the police finally arrive in time to try to help, Noelle dies from his gunshot wounds that Rigel inflicted on him. Mm -hmm. The end. Yeah. Actually, like, quite literally the end. Like, Noelle basically falls over, and then it's the end. Yeah. comes up. Like, there's no denouement in this movie at all. So, like I said at the beginning, this movie was a surprise hit for me. Um, there's shadows, atmosphere, violence. It's just a good, good horror movie for me. It's efficiently mysterious with who's doing the killing. Um, it's Rigel. Um, okay. I felt that the movie was unclear on this point, and I had a feeling we were going to suddenly have an argument about this. because A discussion. A discussion. Because the movie never says that Rigel's the one who killed the first two people. What happens, at least as far as my interpretation of the dialogue was, I think there's enough ambiguity in here that I could see how you would come to your <laughs> conclusion. I think the other reason why like you interpret it in favor of Rigel is the movie does a very good job of making Noelle sympathetic. Yeah. Noelle is supposed to be sympathetic in this movie for... It is provable that the audience is supposed to be sympathetic for Noelle. But it's not like Noelle is, like, reluctantly killing people as a last resort. He straight up murders those dudes in the village because they said he looked like a monkey. Like, he has a hair-trigger <laughs> temper. The closest the movie gets to confirming Rogel is, like, there's a scene where Henri and Rogel are talking. And Henri's like, so you did murder that dude in the hotel. And Rogel just says something along the lines of, like, so what if I did? And like, oh, well, then you killed the dog, too. And he's like, maybe, maybe you should stop asking questions. Like, it's weird yeah, to me. Yeah, he doesn't give a straight answer. Yeah, it's weird to me that in, like, a Hollywood movie from the 40s that there would be that kind of ambiguity. But it, 
I think ties into another thing about Rogel and Noel, which is part of why, like, I'm 100% sure that the movie is meaning for Noel to be sympathetic, which is that Noel being sympathetic is the only reason the character of Rogel even exists. Yeah. Right? Because, like, he's not... Rogel, at least best as I could tell, has not been an element in any of the previous versions of this story. I mean, in the novel, um, it's someone else who's committing these murders. Mm-hmm. So I just presumed that Rogel's character was taken from that. Okay. Because the way I kind of interpreted it is, like, Noel is a very standard horror mad scientist monster, right? Like, we've seen the uplifted ape man before, right? Mm-hmm. And we've seen the monster that turns on its creator before. Like, this is kind of like Mad Monster from last week in that, like, there's a lot of things in this movie where it's like, we've seen kind of this and that before. Rogel's really the the new element in terms of, like, how he fits into the formula. And he's really only in the movie so that he can kidnap Madeline at the end instead of Noel, so Noel can heroically save Madeline. And it's like, you know, he has to have Rogel to fight so that he can be sympathetic or retain that sympathy. Like, he's, rather to say, he's already sympathetic by this point, so mm-hmm. the audience is already cheering for him, so don't turn him into the villain at the end. But then, of course, he still has to die from his bullet wounds, because he did still kill those people earlier, because they're trying to have it kind of both ways, with Noel being both the dangerous horror monster and the, like, Quasimodo-type sympathetic character, right? Yeah. I don't know. He says he didn't do it, so I'm going to believe Noel. Okay. Um, but that's fine. We can agree to disagree. At the very least, I think we can agree that the actor, J. Carol Nash, was great. He's a fantastic example of physical acting. Yeah, he does a really good job with the physicality here to get across, you know, the, the simian origins of his character, I guess. The makeup is really subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, like, he's got kind of this, like, ring of swept back hair, and he's got kind of a heavy brow, and he's got kind of like a pug nose, and his, his lips are a bit fat. But it's it's a good way of splitting the difference where you can tell that he's obviously supposed to look ape-like, but it's not so extreme that you're wondering why the villagers just think that he's, like, a native from Java, right? Like, that's the cover story. Yeah. And you can believe that, like, yeah, a bunch of French people would be like, oh, yeah, he's just from a weird part of the world. Unlike some of these cases, like, you know, for example, um, the 1931 Jekyll and Hyde, where Hyde looks so ludicrously unhuman that you wonder how anyone is, like, not just murdering him on sight, right? Yeah. Yeah, like, the way he moves his arms... At one point, he is sitting with a a chimpanzee, and, like, they're both eating peanuts or something. And he goes to stand up, and he pulls himself up by the arms rather than actually just standing up. Like, it Mm -hmm. just struck me as, like, you know, he's very committed to the physical side of acting like an ape. Yeah, and, you know, speaking to the Noel versus Rogel thing here, too, like, it's interesting for once to see the sort of creature character being played by, um, like, a smaller actor. Like, J. Carroll mm-hmm. Nash is not a very big man. He's shorter than the actor playing Forbes, right? Like, he's small. Um, and it's Rogel, who kind of is the typical horror movie, like, Six giant. Like, yeah. he, like, needs to dip his head so he doesn't hit his head on, like, Door parts frames of the set. And, yeah. Yeah. The voice that he uses for Noel was something I wanted to remark on. It's kind of this, like if Peter Laurie got hit on the head real hard kind mm. of voice. It's this, like, high-pitched voice, but it kind of is slow and halting because Noel's supposed to be, like, 
not really that bright, right? Like, he's literally an ape that was trained to talk. Like, the backstory is that, like, no, he's literally an ape that, like, brain surgery and plastic surgery was done on to make him look and kind of act human, right? But the thing I noticed is that that same voice, just kind of faster and with a more intelligent speech pattern, is basically the exact same voice he uses for Dr. Daka when he's in Batman. It's that same kind of, like, yes, gentlemen, we will soon catch the Batman. But, like, here it's like, yes, Dr. I am Noel, right? It's just slower. Okay. And it was just something that I noticed that I wanted to point out. Michelle's actually fairly good, for the record. Yeah, he's the other, I think, standout performance in the cast. Like, Nash is certainly doing a lot of stuff that's really cool. And um, Mazurki, who plays Rigel, he's just a lot of fun. Like, he's clearly really enjoying himself in the part. He does get a wrestling scene. Yes. Uh, everyone else in the movie is just kind of fine, right? Like, they're they're doing all right with characters that are just one-dimensional stock characters. I'm the hero. I'm the girl. I'm the scientist. I'm the inspector. I'm the innkeeper. I mean, I think Zuko did a fairly good job. Um, like, his face when he's whipping Noelle, you can really just see, like, some hatred in there. And then also, um, at one point, Noelle is, like, trying to sneak up on Renault to, like, mm. strangle him. And Renault turns, and, like, the look in Zuko's face is priceless. It's great. Yeah, I mean, we talked last week about Zuko being kind of our MVP in Mad Monster. And I feel like with him, it's like there's a base level of competency there where I think he's good in this movie, too. I just mean that I don't think he's doing anything like, particularly special, right? He's just no, doing he's a, just a good actor. Yeah, he's just doing a good job. And I think, like, I'd also just like to shout out the inspector, Arthur Shields. I thought he did a fairly good job as the inspector when he only had, like, two scenes. We're at this weird point in doing this show where, like, we've seen so many of these Poverty Row B movies that I feel like we see an actor just, like, not be a total screw-up, and we're like, man, this guy was good. You gotta give props to even people who are, like, you know, like, there's a reason why you celebrate when you get a B or a B plus. Because, sure, it's not an A, but it's not a C. Okay. Um, all right. <laughs> I, um, so, oh, sorry. Speaking of Arthur Shields, who plays the inspector, that brings me to, I think, my main problem with this movie. Like, I enjoyed this movie. This movie's fine. This is just so inexplicable to me. Why did we keep the French setting? Like, I get that it's based on a French novel from a French author and all of that stuff, but, like, it's not necessary for the plot. There's nothing about the story of the movie that says this has to be France. And not only that, but only the most minor background characters in this movie even try to adopt French accents. Like, Arthur Shields, who's playing the inspector, just sounds English. Sometimes sounds Irish. Right, Zuko sounds English, but then, like, Madeline sounds, you know, American. Um, Frickin' Rogel has, like, a Brooklyn tough guy accent. (laughs) Like, nobody really is trying. Nothing in the movie is particularly French. Like, yes, they go to Bastille Day celebrations, but the celebrations that we see are so overwhelmingly generic that they could have been Fourth of July or just a random carnival passing through. It really doesn't matter. Like, France as a setting just raises way more questions than it does answers. It's it's distracting watching the movie. <laughs> Just accept it and, and continue rolling, dude. Why isn't this England? Like, why not? Sure. 
It's a French novel. Yeah, it's and just... we also do get a name drop of Larue. So right, it's just such a weird decision for someone in 1942 to make. Like, like just that no one in that train of thought of like movie executives, like no one in the extremely long ladder of hierarchy between a scriptwriter and like a chief of um, executive of production, was like. Hey, guys, maybe setting this in France ain't such a good idea, considering we're at war and all. Like, it's it's bonkers. Like, I get that, like, the Frankenstein movies are stuck with being set in Germany because they were just, like, you know, they're just backed into that corner already, you know? But, like, this is so weird. Um, the only thing I can think of, and it's not very strong because, like you said, it could be Fourth of July or whatever, mm-hmm. but Bastille Day is all about France's independence, mm-hmm. right? Like, the French Revolution. They keep mentioning, like, the guillotine and French Revolution type stuff. Mm-hmm. Iconography, I mean to say. that That's not something that, like, means you have to keep this French. So I do see where you're coming from. Yeah, like, I get that, like, maybe the freedom themes, like, overlap with Noel. Noel. He laments that he's a slave and that he's lost his freedom. But yeah, I think I think Fourth of July would have served just as well. And the other thing that's like annoying to me is like, okay, if you wanted to, against all sensibility, make this French, like put some effort into it. Like have the Bastille Day celebrations feel like Bastille Day and not just like, you know, you turned over to your writing partner and you were like, Hey, uh, what kind of holidays they got in France anyway? Oh, Bastille Day. Yeah, okay, sure. And then just continued to write, and someone was like, hey, maybe you should do some research, and you were like, nah, man, I gotta clock out They at don't have o'clock. the internet. They have libraries. Yeah, but that'd be, like, fucking sifting through encyclopedias. That's an author's, like, that's a right, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> like, a good writer does the work, these guys had bills to pay. That's what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, we're saying the same thing. Yeah. And even the themes about freedom and independence and throwing off slavery, um, that is, like... The movie doesn't lay it out for you, you know? No. Ben and I are kind of making, like, it's a logical leap. You can, you know, it's like, oh, there's a circle, and there's a circle. There's a pattern. Yeah. But the the movie isn't being like, look at the two circles. Yeah. In the same way that, like, I don't know, Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I, all of this is to say that, like, you know, Dr. Renal's secret isn't trying to make this about a societal theme. Yeah, Dr. Renal's secret is basically just taking a bunch of tropes from other horror movies, right? Like, the whole idea even of, like, the monster that feels abused and turns on the creator. Like, oh, I see, you've seen Frankenstein. And, like, hey, we turned uh, an ape into a man, but it can't suppress its animal urges. Like, oh, you've seen Island of Lost Souls. And, like, hey, we're doing experiments on, like, human and ape, like, crossbreeding in France. Oh, you've seen Murders in the Rue Morgue. Like, nothing we've seen here is new, but I will agree with you, it's well done here. This movie looks good. (laughs) Uh, You know, it has very typical, cliche locations, like the big mansion house, and the secret lab, and the quaint little village, and stuff like that. But they look good, because they're lit well, and they have, like you said, those shadows, and the scenes are staged well, with use of, like, foreground and background and blocking, and there's some nice little stylistic touches, like the odd Dutch angle here and there. Like, you can tell that this is a studio picture, and that it has a competent director, because it's got, like, just a nice, slick professionalism to it that, say, makes it stand out versus, like, 
last week's movie, which was basically the same movie, um, you know, in the broadest strokes, but certainly this this looks a lot better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the visual storytelling, it, it was all very good. I thoroughly enjoyed this, and like I said, it's a surprise hit for me. I definitely recommend listeners try to find it and watch it, because it's, it's, a, it's an enjoyable 50 minutes. Um, for the record, also, 50 minutes... That's, like, the perfect length for this. Yeah, that's... It's not long enough that you start to, like... Well, at least for me, I didn't start to think, like, why is this in France? I, you know, I didn't start to ask those questions. I definitely thought, like, why is this in France? But I didn't start asking questions about, like, wait, this plot doesn't make any sense, which does occasionally happen watching <laughs> this, these movies. Like, it it has really good... I totally agree with you that it has very good... Um, Editing. And pacing, right? Yeah. Like, the movie keeps along on, like, a... a a nice clip, right? Yeah, for me it's very well edited, well shot, well acted. It's nice and tight. Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of disappointing that, like, you can't really get easy access to this. Like, not only can you not stream it anywhere, and you can't, you know, rent it from any digital storefronts, but even if, you know, you wanted to find the DVD, it's only on DVD in a box set with two other movies, right? That aren't even horror Right. I mean, I don't know, Shandu the Magician's fun. But, um, <laughs> yeah, like, okay, for the record, the other two movies are Shandu the Magician, starring Bela Lugosi. It's basically 1930s Doctor Strange, and Bela Lugosi's the villain. And the other movie is Dragonwick, which is a period gothic romance, so if that's your thing, that could also be fun. But, yeah, it's it's frustrating that you can't, like, easily get access to this movie. And I think you were sort of saying this earlier, it's surprisingly grisly. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's closer to, you know, the Dark Eyes of London or Son of Frankenstein level than we've seen a lot lately. Um, you know, there are things, certainly there are times where you can tell they toned it down, where, like, certain murders happen off screen, or, like, a trick that they use a lot in this movie is the, they move slightly off screen and we see the shadows do it, which is, like, a pretty classic way for stories to get around censors uh in regards to violence um and they do that a lot in this movie but there's other things that like certainly surprise certainly the the dog thing that you brought up was one another one that kind of shocked me was he strangles one of the villagers to death uh of the two that he kills he being noel and he then like tosses the guy out a window (laughs) and we don't see the impact because that would be too violent but we definitely see like some people like in a room like look out a window as the body falls past them yeah yeah we're like in the bar and it's just like these two guys i think one of them's the inspector just like sitting over a table and in the background just a mannequin hit the ground and it was just like a little comical a little bit but it was also like a little shocking to see right like Mm -hmm. We've gotten so used to, if there's violence in these movies, the trick of, like, cut away to show reactions instead of showing it, that even just showing a little bit more of it before doing that is interesting. Even when Noel is attacking the the second villager, Mm -hmm. he's a barber, and um, Noel's in there, like, to get a shave, but then, like, he sneaks up on the barber. I don't know, it was sufficiently, like... I don't want to say spooky. That's not the right word. But well, maybe grisly? Yeah, the thing was, was there was a lot of interesting things that the director was doing where, like, he would do things like cut from a wider shot to a closer shot on the same angle, like, in a jump cut kind of style mm. um, that's really uncommon for American films of this period, but helps 
give a lot of like energy and um, immediacy and like a bit of um, just a bit of punch to something that can be really boring visually, which is the like strangling someone in a movie like this. Because one of the things about, you know, if you've never seen any of these movies, despite the fact that you listen to this show, um, when they do these strangling scenes, it's almost always from the same angle. It's from like behind the victim looking up at the murderer because if you went the other way, you'd have the person's, like, eyes bulging out of their head and, you know, all the unpleasantness of them dying, right? So you never see that. And so it's kind of just visually uninteresting to watch someone strangle someone if you don't see the reaction of the dying person. Doing these weird editing tricks and changing angles and certainly using a lot of, like, low angles looking up and Dutch angles and lighting and so on, like, really helps give a lot of energy to these things that just we haven't seen in a while because we've had a string of directors who don't give a shit. <laughs> so speaking of a string of directors who don't give a shit, let's move on to ranking. Sure. So where are we thinking for ranking? Um, well, I really like this movie, so I'll go first. Okay. When I started to look at where to rank this, I thought, why not look at Phantom of the Opera? <laughs> sure, You know, okay. they're based off of a something LaRue from LaRue, Le- yeah. I enjoyed this movie so much that I think there's a chance that this could go above Phantom, but that's as high as I would ever put it. Okay. I do feel like more of where this should sit is um, Phantoms at 18. Yeah. Um, I feel like more where this would sit is between 20 and 22, 20 is Vampire, 21 is Man Who Changed His Mind, and 22 is the Spencer Tracy, Jekyll and Hyde. So, you liked this movie a lot more than I did, it seems. We're going to have, I think, some trouble here. I, I liked it. I just felt that this movie was, like, totally fine and competent, but nothing special. That's okay. That's kind of how I walked away from it. Like, I only... I really enjoyed it because we haven't really seen much that's been very good lately, but I don't think it's as good as where you've got it, um, personally. Uh, my range is, uh, my, my floor is number 45. Um, because I thought, you know, this was similarly grisly to Dark Eyes of London, which is at 44. And I thought this is definitely better than Corpse Vanishes because like this movie makes sense all the way through and I can like follow (laughs) what's going on. There's nothing in this movie that makes me sit up and go like, wait, what? But I'm not sure if it's better than Dark Eyes of London, but they are, like, they're similarly grisly. I think Dark Eyes of London is maybe a little grislier. And then my ceiling is not much higher above that. Um, I'm looking at Murders in the Room Morgue, mm. because that's the other ape-human mad scientist France movie that we've sure. got on the list. And I think, I'm not sure if this is better than Murders in the Room Morgue, because I think Murders in the Room Morgue, like, goes to some pretty extreme places. But we often talk about how that movie, like, really cuts itself off at the knees, as it were, because it was so desperate to, like, please the censors. And I think the thing that this movie was clever about, and one thing that, like, I will say in favor of the production code, is, like, this movie... So, for example, at the start of the show... Sorry, I'm rambling a little bit. So at the start of the show, we talked about how this movie couldn't talk about, like, Darwin... And it had to be careful about the grisliness or whatever. So this movie never says, like, oh, yeah, humans are evolved from apes. And Dr. Renault's trying to, like, prove their interrelatedness by turning one into the other. The movie never says that. The movie just shows us an ape who's been turned into a dude. And at one point, like, Forbes is rooting around Renault's, um, 
library and picks up like a book on like anthropology and that's it there's just a suggestion of it so if you know what the theory of evolution is as an audience member you can put it together otherwise whatever and i think one of the good things about the code was that they did script reviews to identify like those problematic things early so even though this movie is toned down from murders in the room morgue it doesn't have that same like bizarre feeling that murders in the room morgue does of like getting cut off at the knees because Murders in the Remorgue, you had an entire movie that was made to be super extreme and then had to be cut back in, like, the edit. Yeah, Right. Yeah. So I wasn't sure if this was better or worse than that, so that was my ceiling. I thought maybe it was better, maybe it was worse. So 39 to 45 was where I was looking. Um, so that's the range between your floor and my ceiling is 22 to 39. Yeah, that's quite a big jump. I will say in your range that I would disagree that The Dark Eyes of London is grislier. Okay. It just handles the grisly details in a completely different way. It's more of a, I don't want to say sterile, but it's more of a professional way. because it's a police detect- procedure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas this, it's a horror movie. Mm. It's like through and through a horror movie. I was very much like shocked at the image of the dog's shadow hanging from his collar. Um... And very much spooked when Noelle's creeping up on the barber, for sure. example. So I I would argue that Dr. Noelle's secret is more intense in its horror than Dark Eyes. Well, um, let's, let's start it, because we have this uh, huge gap. Sure. Let's just look between our two ranges. Let's take it as a given that, you know, the truth is somewhere in between. Sure. Right? Um, so we can... We can uh, allow that this movie is better than, you know, Mark the Vampire, Ghost of Frankenstein, the Nazi version of Student of Prague, and um, poor old Dracula's daughter. Um, but if we're looking between our ranges, like, what's your feeling for this versus Murders in the Room Org? Let's start there and maybe work our way up till I can't take it no more. <laughs> well, I think you kind of made the case for me, honestly. Um, it's better put together mm. because, you know, you... you discuss this in the framing of, you know, the code did something good for once. Um, and I think you're right. It created a more cohesive, spooky horror movie rather than something that was, yeah, legitimately terrifying, both in Bella's uh, treatment of that lady um, on the torture device and of the college singing. Right. You know? Um, so I would argue that Renault's secret should go above Room Morgue, just in the fact that it's a more cohesive product. Okay. Yeah, I mean... While still being very stylish. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny how, like, all these episodes later, like, what you remember about Room Morgue is, like, that lady, like, swinging on, like, the flower swing. And I feel like what I remember about Room Morgue is, like, chasing the ape man across, like, the roofs of Paris or whatever. Yeah, it's the lady swinging and then the lady on the X. Right. So above that, we have Dr. X. Um, and then, you know, you have um, the original Eerie Tales, the original Student of Prague, um, Man with Nine Lives, which is the one where Karloff has a bunch of dudes in his freezer. Oh, yeah. Um, and then above that, there's the Raven, where you have, like, Lugosi as, like, the crazy, like, sadist. And Karloff as, like, his, like... Uh, Deformed assistant. Yes, exactly. Doing, like, revenge on people. Um, so what about the movies in the in that range? Uh, is there a spot that you kind of go, oh, well, maybe, at any of those? 
Um, again, I would argue that Winara's secret is above the Raven, even. Um, just with, like, how much comedy is, like, shoehorned into the Raven with the extraneous people. Like, pretty right. much everyone dies at the end of Winara's secret. Sure, yeah. There isn't... With the exception of, like, the American drunken tourist who gets killed off at the start of the movie, like, there isn't really, like, a comic relief thing going on here. And there definitely is in The Raven. There's a bunch of extra Couples. dinner guests who are just comic relief, right? So, mm-hmm. all right. Um, well, okay. My eyes stop at, like, White Zombie and Hands of Orlac. Sure. White Zombie had, um, I mean, we called that episode Haitian Dracula. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you could argue that Winnell's Secret is also basing itself off of something because it's an adaptation. Well, and also, even if it, like, even if I had no idea it was based on that novel, because after all, it doesn't credit it, it's not like I'm walking out of this going, my god, a scientist who created a monster who was sympathetic and turned on him? What an original idea! (laughs) I've never seen any of the four Frankenstein movies they've made up to this point. Uh, an ape turned into a man? Gosh, what an original concept. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you, you mm-hmm. can give White Zombie shit for ripping off Dracula, and I can give this movie shit for ripping off every one of its ideas from somewhere else, right? Sure, that's fair. I think, like, but thinking of, like, the intensity of the horror in these movies, right? Like, it comes down to, like, what do you think is scarier, right? Like, in White Zombie, you have people's... Um, Agency, taken agency away. being taken away from them by Lugosi, you know, through potions, basically, as he watches and manipulates you after the fact. And here we've got, don't get this ape guy angry, or he'll turn on you. Or... I would argue that it's like, Noel was taken from his home and experimented on. Like, there's a reason he hates Renal so much, and is abused so terribly. Yeah. And he's seeing him do it to another chimpanzee that's in the cage. The problem is, is, like, because we're code times, like, we don't see Renal experimenting on anything, right? We don't see any of that. You know, in terms of his abuse of Noel... We see some verbal abuse, and we see him, like, whip him with, like, a big bullwhip, which, like, has become, like, a weird continuing trope in these movies, because we've seen Lugosi do it to, like, his weird assistants in previous movies and stuff. Um, It probably originates from Fritz. Yes. Yeah, it totally does. Um, But, like, I get the idea that, like, you're trying to make an argument that the horror is from Noelle's point of view, because Noelle is the most sympathetic character. Mm -hmm. But, like, I'm not... I'm not super sure about that because Noel is treated as the big scary thing that's threatening everyone for a lot large part of the movie and we don't you know see the experiments we don't see Renault like take Noel from his home like other than in like a bunch of pictures in a scrapbook yeah um you know so I'm not super sure about that and even if you want to you know if you make the argument that this is a movie about like a an abused slave who turns on his master and gets free, like, okay, I'll agree with that, 100%, but it doesn't make 12 Years a Slave a horror movie. It doesn't make, you know what I mean? Like, Okay. So I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm trying to say, like, what to you... I'm trying to suss out what to you makes this a better horror movie than White Zombie. I guess part of it is all the pieces kind of working fairly well together. Like I kind of said in the discussion, like I would say that 
Dr. Renault's secret is fairly tight, like it's well paced, well edited. Mm -hmm. um, there were parts of White Zombie where like the music would just like cut off or like just have a needle drop. You know, it yeah. was kind of weird. It was, um, I mean, part of this is like... They... It was very primitive. It was a 1932 movie. And they were um, paying homage to silent film as well, especially with some of the acting with the, uh, the uh, chick. Yeah, yeah, it was very, like, that over-the-top, silent style of acting. Yeah. So, I don't know, maybe it's best if we, like, compare specific scenes, because that kind of helps. So, if I were to choose a scene from White Zombie, maybe when, um, I forget everyone's name, but basically, Bella Lugosi has, like, poisoned the main bad dude. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, the main bad dude is just slowly being overcome with the poison to become a slave. Yeah, that I would agree that that's probably the most chilling, effective scene in White Zombie. Mm -hmm. And then maybe a chilling scene in Dr. Renault's secret would be when Noel is probably coming up onto the barber, because that's one that has really struck in my mind, but... You could maybe go with, like, the final fight between him and Renal, but that's not really spooky. That's, like, an action climax. Yeah, like, for sure. Um, yeah, the climax of the movie is very much an, an action thing. Um, yeah, I, I thought the Barber murder was really good, mm -hmm. but it didn't... I don't know if I'm going to remember it in a month. Like, it didn't hit me as hard as it hit with you, mm -hmm. um, which, like... And, it like, the other moment that kind of struck to me struck me with Dr. Renal was, like, seeing the shadow of the dog. Mm -hmm. But again, that's more of a shock. There's no scene there. Yeah. You know? It's, it's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's not quite a jump scare, but it's like a jump shock. Um, what about that, like, versus something like, I, I know you got hit hard by seeing, like, the hung people in the 1941 version of Black Cat, and that was not shadows, that was actually seeing it. Or does the fact that it's, like, a dog make it worse? It's an old dark house plot, and there's the woman and her inheritance, and everyone's running around oh, the house. Oh, and she's on and... the, the door. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's two of them. Like, what makes this... Because we're way higher than that black hat. It, we're already way higher than that, but I'm just trying to suss out, like, what makes the shadow of the dog who's been hanged worse than actually seeing the woman who's been hanged. Is it just that it's a dog? It might be. Because, like, you're not expecting it. Sure. Right? Like, you expect people to get got. I expected the dog to be killed. They were no. setting up the dog to be killed. They were all like, this dog that we found out of nowhere that barks at Noel, and Noel's like kind of the monster in this movie. We're just going to leave the dog out, you know, to prowl the backyard and see what happens to it. Like, the, the thing that was shocking was I didn't expect the dog to be hanged. That's weird. Yeah. That's some weird shit. Yeah, so I think it was, yeah, the fact that the, it was a dog that was hanged. Okay. Rather than just people. So if we look a couple spots above, I know we haven't really settled the white zombie question yet, but if we look a couple spots above, the exact midpoint between your floor and my ceiling is number 30, uh, which is Phantom of the Convent, El Fantasma del Convento. Mm, that's a good point. Hmm. I would conceivably put Dr. Renal's secret below that, because El Fantasma, it was doing some spooky things, and I really like when spooky films kind of play with, well, what's real? Mm -hmm. You know, what what was supernatural, what wasn't? Like, yeah. and blurring that line. And that movie had a real dead person in it. Yeah, an Aztec mummy. <laughs> um, and then, you know, to be honest, Sarah, like, above that, you have, like, Fall of the House of Usher, and you have Freaks, and you have, 
you know, just these movies where it's like, mm, nah, man, like, sure. I'm gonna... I, I aim too high, I burned my wings. Yeah, like, like six <laughs> months from now, if you're like, hey, you know... Is this a ghoul scenario? Yeah, exactly, where it's like, how did this movie get so high? Because, like, yeah, if you, like, I'll remember scenes from Freaks longer than I remember scenes from this movie, the same way that I can only vaguely remember what happened in the ghoul. <laughs> Um, but I think for me, I'm willing to put this above Hands of Orlac, even though that makes me sad because I really like Hands of Orlac because I think Conrad Veidt's a better actor than every actor in this movie. I will agree that this movie's plot hangs together a lot better and is much better constructed. And as you keep repeating, you know, the pieces fit together better than Hands of Orlac, which spends an hour and a half telling you this guy's hands and then spends like five minutes telling you like okay so actually there's this murderer and he faked this thing with this doctor and he um even though i don't i'm not really impressed with the plot of dr renault's secret because it's all stuff i've seen before at least there's no part in this movie where i'm like wait i'm sorry what did you just say? <laughs> Which has been happening a lot for me with these horror movies lately. Yeah. Okay. So I'll I'll put it there. I'll put it... I, that's as high as I'm willing to go, is number 31. Yeah, and that's below Alphantasma, which is like, I, I would agree that Alphantasma would go above. So okay. I'm happy. All right, so this is, our, this is our compromise spot. Coming in at number 31 on the list is Dr. Renault's Secret, a surprise upset, I think. Uh, in terms of, like, what our expectations were going into this. Definitely. Uh, directed by Harry Lockman from 1942. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned if you want to listen back to Murders in the Room Morgue, um, White Zombie, even Orlok's Hund. Uh, do so. Uh, links are right there in the list. On our website, you can also find an appeals box where you can submit appeals or questions, concerns, anything of the sort. And if Tumblr isn't your bag, you can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or chat with us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. If you can, leave us a rating or review on the service that you listen to the show on. That would be a big help. Otherwise, we'd really appreciate it if you just spread... Word of the show around. Share episodes on social media. Send them to friends who you think would like it. Stop people on the street and be like, hey, have you heard of this podcast? Um, you know, make friends in line at the bank. Uh, <laughs> all of that's really appreciated. Another thing we'd really appreciate is if you head over to patreon.com slash podcast. You can become a patron of the show for as little as a dollar a month. It's really simple. At $1 a month, we will thank you on the show from the bottom of our heart. At $5 a month, you get access to bonus audio. Um, mostly deleted scenes, cut content from past episodes, which come out every week on Mondays. And at the $10 level, you get access to horror short stories that I write that come out on a roughly monthly basis. And um, when you join up at whatever level, you get access to all the previous content available from that level, including all the special stuff we did in October this year, including um, a last bunch... Last year. Yes. Last year. Within the last 12 months. <laughs> um, including a EP of electronic Halloween music that Sarah did. Uh, so it's all really cool stuff. So you should head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast and give it a look. What are we watching next week, Ben? 
Well, Sarah, on the one hand, we're back at Universal, which, you know, has a good reputation for horror movies. On the other hand, I've never heard of this movie before, uh, or its director, or really anything about it. Okay. It's called Night Monster, and it's from 1942, and that's about everything I know about it right now. Okay, well, I look forward to hearing more and learning more next week. See you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye! (laughs) 